I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Remember this? Good afternoon. I want to begin by acknowledging the tremendous hardship the Ukrainian people are suffering as a result of Russia's invasion. That's Fed boss Jerome Powell in March 2022 about to announce the first U.S. interest rate hike in three years. The financial and economic implications for the global economy and the U.S. economy are highly uncertain. Back then, the early economic shocks from Russia's invasion of Ukraine were only just being felt. A surge in prices of crude oil and other commodities were generating inflation. That was against the backdrop of the COVID pandemic, Global supply chains had been disrupted, while the Biden administration's COVID relief packages had injected trillions of dollars into the US economy. It was a unique set of circumstances, all pushing up inflation at a rate that was alarming to many economists and eventually alarming to the Fed. At the Federal Reserve, we are strongly committed to achieving the monetary policy goals that Congress has given us, maximum employment and price stability. Today, in support of these goals, the FOMC raised its policy interest rate by one quarter percentage point. That decision heralded a new era for the US and the global economy. Onto the Fed forecast. If I've done the math right, which I think I did, the average Fed official, the median Fed official showing seven hikes for 2022. The forecasts were right for once. The Fed raised interest rates seven times in 2022, which is the highest number of Fed rate hikes in a single year since 2005. And then last week came this. With today's action, we've raised our policy rate by five and a quarter percentage points since early last year. The 11th rate hike in 16 months. It was widely expected, but now many are predicting it might be the last for now. Whether they were against or in favour of raising interest rates so quickly, very few economists imagined that the US economy would look as it does now, with unemployment at rock-bottom levels, inflation falling and growth tentatively rolling on at decent levels. So what did economists and the rest of us learn from this experiment in monetary policy? You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. In London, I'm Mike Bird. Also in London, I'm Tom Lee Devlin. In Washington, D.C., I'm Alice Fullwood. And in today's show, what can we learn from this round of Fed rate hikes? First, we ask why things aren't behaving as we would normally expect. If you look at a series of indicators that people often point to ahead of recessions, there have been red warning lights flashing for quite some time. Then we hear how policymaking has been put to the test. We've run a big macro experiment and we're learning some positive and negative things from that. And finally, we speak to a former Fed governor about the potential results of that experiment. If I were a betting man, I'm still willing to make a pretty strong bet that we're going to have a recession. 
But, you know, I could be wrong. I'd be happy if we're wrong. Hi, Tom. Hi, Alice. Hey, Mike. It's great to uh, be in the studio together for once. Hi, both. Yeah, it's comparatively lonely out here in D.C., but it's nice to see you both in the same place. Uh, we'll, we'll have to look at the diaries and work out how to get all three of us together in the studio for an episode soon. We will. But it's wonderful to have you back, Tom. We missed you very much. And I'm pleased the anti-malarials seem to have done their job. Yes, it's great to have you back on the show and in good health. Although I'm sure you were probably delighted to have a break from uh, the cut and thrust of global business and economics coverage. Yeah, I mean, usually when I go on holiday, I continue compulsively checking the news on my phone. But I was much better about it this time around. It probably helps that I was busy looking for elephants and lions on safari, of which I saw many, you'll be pleased to know. But I have to say, coming back from a couple of weeks off is always a little bit disorienting trying to catch up on all the news. How is the 4G on safari? Limited, patchy at best, I would say. Okay, fair enough. Would have been difficult. Well, while you've been away, the picture for the US economy has only seemed to get rosier. We've had both better than expected GDP figures, lower than expected inflation figures. And the general consensus now seems to be that the latest round of interest rate hikes has probably come to an end, not necessarily, but probably. And that's really just added to the critical mass of sentiment that's been building for a while from doom mongering at the very beginning of the year about a recession that was just around the corner to actually people deciding that a soft landing seems to be a more likely outcome. Exactly. This time last year, if you told people that the Fed funds rate would be at five and a half percent and the economy would be just kind of fine, they would have simply goggled at you. Much like the uh, electric plane Tom was flying in a few weeks ago, a soft landing is obviously a good outcome, even though at one point it didn't look very likely. And with the rate rises potentially over for the time being, it's time for us to do what anyone would at the end of a long and rather exhausting hike, to turn around and look behind us admire the view and talk about what we've seen along the way. Well, in my mind, that's a kind of combination of lots of press conferences with very concerned looking central bank governors, the odd bank collapse and some despairing home buyers. But I'm guessing there's also probably some lessons learned in there as well, Mike. There are indeed. And to discuss those, I want to bring in the Economist's US economics editor, Simon Rabinovich. Simon, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Mike. It's great to be here. So first off, could you please bring us up to speed with where we are now? The Fed has raised rates for the fourth time this year. A lot of people are saying this will be the last hike. That's right. So fourth time this year, but it's the 11th hike in 12 meetings going back to March of last year. So they've brought rates up from a floor of effectively 0% to five and a quarter. So that's really, you know, for the last four decades, unprecedented, the sharpest tightening cycle since the early 1980s. I think if we cast our minds back to the beginning of last year, when it was clear that inflation was really a problem, there were two broad schools of thought about it. Simplifying, people said they were kind of team transitory or team persistent. The transitory thinking was that inflation would basically melt away as the economy got back to normal. The persistent thinking was that the Fed was going to have to do a lot. And I think what's happened is kind of in a way an odd amalgam where the Fed has obviously done a lot. And yet it looks like the economy is basically gliding towards the soft landing that those from Team Transitory 
had thought was the likeliest outcome. So I think there's a little bit for both of these camps to be happy about. Transitory is obviously claiming that they were right, that inflation is just going to melt away. But then Team Persistent is saying that they were right. In fact, clearly the Fed had to turn extremely hawkish as it did, albeit belatedly. And if it was not for this monetary tightening, we wouldn't be in the relatively positive space that we are right now for the economy. Yeah, I guess the cycle has sort of confounded everyone to some degree. Why has everything sort of shaken out this way? I mean, the obvious answer, which I think is staring all of us in the face, is that this has been a highly unusual cycle. It's not been driven by anything fundamental to the economy, but by the public health disaster that was the COVID pandemic, and then all of, of course, the restrictions that were put in place that changed the way that the economy functioned, that people lived their lives. That was obviously a very big driver of inflation. It led to shortages of goods, shortages of labor. So that explains a lot of, but not all of, the inflation that has been experienced, not just in America, but you know, really throughout the developed world over the past two years. But I think the pandemic oddities also help to explain, you know, why growth itself has been so resilient. You know, because of the fiscal response, you had huge cushions of excess savings that were built up by households, by governments, by local governments, by companies. That has really helped to insulate the economy from this very, very rapid tightening. And again, you look at the labor shortages, that has made companies quite disinclined to lay off workers, you know, even as there have been signs of economic softening over the past year. So all of that has been an environment that's been very supportive for growth and has enabled the Fed to get away with a very, very sharp tightening without tilting the economy into a serious recession, at least to date. So what do people say about where we're heading now? Is it still too optimistic to talk seriously about a, a soft landing? The conversation has quite dramatically shifted in the direction of there will be a soft landing in the past month or so. And you know, I think at the risk of, of simplification, if you look at a series of indicators that people often point to ahead of recessions, there have been red warning lights flashing for quite some time. For example, you look at the yield curve, it's been very deeply inverted, which is to say that short-term rates, interest rates, have been much higher than long-term interest rates. That's, you know, historically over the last five decades, pretty much been an infallible indicator of a coming recession. But then if you look at the recent run of data, people's views have really shifted. Inflation has come down sharply. You know, you just look at headline inflation. It was running at 9% year on year last June. It's now 3%. I think most amazingly, you look at the labor market. At the very start of the Fed's tightening cycle, the unemployment rate in America was 3.6%. You know, I think pretty much everybody would have agreed that if the Fed raises rates from 0 to 5% in the space of a year, the unemployment rate will go up. Lo and behold, what's the unemployment rate today? We're still at 3.6%. I think nobody predicted that. So really, at this point in time, the soft landing is the consensus. I think if you get one or two months of bad data, I think the conversation will kind of immediately shift back to the idea that, oh no, we are actually heading for a recession that was inevitable after all. Thank you very much for that, Simon. That is all excellent. Please stick around because we'd like to bring you back at the end of the show. Great. Looking forward to it. So we've established the last year and a half has been a bit of a confusing or anomalous time for U.S. economists. 
But what, if anything, have we learned from the way the US economy has behaved in the face of a hiking cycle of this magnitude? To find out, I spoke to Julia Coronado. She's the founder of Macro Policy Perspectives, a research provider. She's also an academic and, amongst other things, a former Fed and financial markets economist. Julia, welcome to the show. Thank you. What do you think we've learned in the last, say, 16, 17 months, however long it's been since the Fed started hiking, about how well interest rates can be used to tame inflation, about what's been specific about inflation this time? How do you think it's been different? How do you think these Fed rate hikes have worked? So I think it's fair to say that most of the inflation that we saw was off of our macroeconomic models. That is, it was a big error. Our models did not predict it. The inflation came before the labor market strengthened, and it was much higher than anything that the labor market tightness would have predicted. So it wasn't a result of the traditional way economists look at slack in the economy. Rather, there was an enormous supply-side component There was a demand side component, but these things interact with each other. So when demand is very strong and supply is constrained, you get these sort of nonlinear price increases. And we saw that in particular with cars in the United States. So people leaving dense urban areas, needing cars, being relatively price insensitive about the cars that they were buying, the cars were less available because of lack of chips. And so we got these just astronomical increases in new and used cars. Now what we're seeing is that demand and supply are interacting in ways that are larger than our models would predict again to the downside. So we've gotten a lot of cooling and inflation, a lot of it led by things like cars without any deterioration in the labor market, without wage growth deceleration leading the way. So there's an extraordinary add-on in this cycle from supply chain dysfunction during the pandemic and now supply chain improvement. That is not to say the Fed's interest rate hikes have had no effect. Fed interest rate hikes make car payments extremely expensive. That makes consumers more price sensitive. And so you see a real fading in demand that now that supply is more plentiful, you get actual price declines, which is rather unusual. So if we think about it over the whole period, what's been the sort of biggest surprise for you? If you were to look at a particular market or a particular sector, is it that strength of the labor market or is it anything else that has come up and you said, this is really not how I would have expected it to go if you'd asked me a year and a half ago? <laughs> so many sources of surprise in this cycle. Uh, very, very difficult and challenging forecasting cycle for private sector forecasters like me and for the Fed. But I would say one is how rapid inflation rose despite coming into this episode with very anchored inflation expectations. So economists tend to put inflation expectations in the center of our models as playing a very critical role anchoring inflation dynamics. Yet by every metric, inflation expectations were very low and we got this surging inflation during the pandemic. 
I mean, it's a cautionary tale. Low and stable inflation expectations aren't necessarily the antidote to all inflation problems. You can get stimulus to demand and disruption to supply that can produce very high inflation, even when nobody was anticipating it. And then I would say also the labor market dynamics have been just so incredibly resilient and that hiring dynamic has been quite resilient even as rate hikes have been forthcoming and very aggressive and the economy has effectively slowed to trend growth, yet that has not come with a round of business caution and mass layoffs, which might otherwise in the past have accompanied such an aggressive rate hiking cycle. If we look at asset markets, if you told me in the middle of 2021 that the Fed was soon going to throw short rates from essentially nothing to 5% at real speed, I would have expected a huge amount of impact, potential sort of damage there. But it's been difficult to see that impact in the equity market. What do you make of that? So I think one of the things I'm learning about this cycle and thinking about financial conditions and the transmission of policy I think we need to look not just at the equity market. There are other areas of financial markets that have shown the stress and strain from Fed rate hikes. They haven't been where we might have expected it. Crypto, the rolling crypto collapse and correction, I would draw definitely a line between that and tighter money. And it turns out that that really hits speculative asset classes first. Now, we tend to think about equity as the market that's the frontier of risk-taking and speculation. But that's not always the case these days. Actually, private equity is another area where the funding conditions are extremely tight. That also has been an area where more speculative sort of reach for yield money was going. And so we are seeing some pretty major tightening in the availability of funding in speculative asset classes. We did get a correction in the equity market last year, but yes, the equity market's been fairly resilient. So I'd say one takeaway is that the equity market isn't necessarily the frontier of riskiness. There are other asset classes that are correcting So the pandemic stimulus is obviously a very unique backdrop to this latest round of Fed tightening. Overall, what's your interpretation of the effect that that had? I think we've run a big macro experiment and we're learning some positive and negative things from that. So the negative was earlier and more aggressive inflation than we had anticipated or thought possible. On the other hand, we're getting one of the strongest, most resilient labor markets globally that we've ever seen. You know, I think we have to attribute some of that to how much we did to support the economy through the pandemic. There was so much fiscal support. The mantra was go big, go early. Time was of the essence. We didn't have time to fine tune and target. So we just sort of erred on the side of providing more rather than less support. And the U.S. and other advanced economies did a lot. And there's still effectively some of that support in the pipeline with households coming into this tightening episode with 
outstanding balance sheets, just record levels of net worth, very low delinquencies, lots of liquidity on the balance sheet. And that's, you know, not typically how we enter a tightening cycle. So we've gotten a lot more resilience. Julia, thank you very much for joining us on the show. It's been great having you. Thank you for coming along. My pleasure. So Alice, Tom, I think the biggest surprise for me, in addition to the strength of the equity market, has been just how strong the housing market has remained if we're looking at at prices. And I wonder how much weight those two things have done in sort of keeping a lot of things ticking over. It's obviously the biggest household investment item for a lot of families. And it does make me wonder if we'd have seen more turmoil there. You know, prices in most places are still nominally above where they were pre-COVID in most parts of the US. I wonder how much of the heavy lifting that's been done in keeping households relatively stable and ticking over has been in the housing market. And I think actually internationally, a lot of the places you look at where house prices have been a little bit wobblier like Korea or Sweden, there's clearly more recession risk. New Zealand, for example, is already in recession. They've had a little bit more difficulty with their housing market. I do wonder how much work is being done in the background there. Yeah, I agree that the housing market may have a big role to play in this. But I guess like the reason it might be strong is in part because of the work governments did in sort of cleaning up household balance sheets or how strong household balance sheets are now. One of the sort of big unanswered questions I have about this whole period in economics is people already expected a mild recession in America in 2020 before COVID even happened. The sort of sluggish post-crisis expansion in America was already a decade old. Uh, People were a bit worried about corporate balance sheets. The yield curve had inverted. People seemed to think that we might get a recession anyway in 2020. But obviously, COVID came along. There was a huge amount of government stimulus. And I've sort of wondered throughout this entire period whether that effectively just wiped the slate clean, that we don't need to have the contraction that might have been slated. And if you just give huge amounts of cash to households and businesses and you pump prime financial markets, do a lot of these problems just melt away? And it's kind of mad because I think once policymakers had the excuse of an economic catastrophe that was no one's fault, they could just do basically as much stimulus as they liked and the economy roared and eventually inflation did bite. But because they made everyone's balance sheet so strong before that, even these sort of five and a half percent rates haven't really hurt the economy that much yet. Yeah, it's a sort of fascinating outcome if this is where we end up. I suppose to play devil's advocate for a moment, I'm not sure it's quite true to say that interest rates aren't hurting at all. You know, I suppose I tend to look at things through the lens of business, which I suppose you'd hope given my job. And while valuations still look good, as Mike was saying before, I think a lot of that is down to the boost to tech stocks from all the hype around AI and, and a very strong performance among banks. And there's actually a lot of trouble that seems to be brewing underneath that. So in the second quarter of this year, earnings for non-financial companies in the S&P 500 were down 10% year on year. Capital investment by those firms is falling in real terms. M&A activity is still very much depressed. And if you look outside the world of large investment grade corporates, we're also starting to see some real signs of financial distress, particularly in the mid-market where leverage rates are often a lot higher. So just a few days ago, Yellow, which is an American trucking firm, 
declared bankruptcy after racking up a huge amount of debt over the past few years. So I do think there are some signs of fragility. Yeah, that's definitely a fair point. It's not totally fine, but it is more fine, I guess, than I would have expected. Still, on the topic of fragility, we've had some excellent coverage in the last few days on the turmoil in Niger following the recent coup, which adds to the growing list of countries in the Sahel that look increasingly precarious. Our Africa team has put forward a compelling case for why the world should care about what is happening in the region. And you can read that coverage and more for absolutely nothing by going to economist.com forward slash podcast offer for a free 30-day digital subscription if you're not a subscriber already. After the break, we'll hear from a former Fed governor who thinks that while headline inflation has come down a lot, there's still a way to go and the last mile may be the hardest. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Before the break, we heard how the last year and a half has essentially been one big macro experiment. And while COVID stimulus packages may have stoked inflation, they also might be what's made the US economy more resilient to the aggressive rate hikes of the last year and a half. But that's not a view shared by everyone. One of those who disagrees is Professor Frederick Mishkin. He's a former Fed governor who believes the later round of COVID stimulus was a mistake and that the recession is still probably on the cards for the US economy. Professor, welcome to the show. Great pleasure to be here. So let's start with the most obvious question. Do you think the Fed is done raising rates in this cycle? Uh, Not necessarily. I think that they are going to have to keep raising further, but it depends really on how the data unfolds. They had to raise rates quite a bit, particularly because they made a serious mistake at the initial phases of this inflation starting to heat up. They were just too slow in raising rates. They misforecast. There were some actual some problems in their basic strategy. When you get behind the curve, then you have to do even more. And they actually did do the right thing. They reversed course 180 degrees and started raising rates at a very rapid rate. And the result was that it has helped get inflation back down. But there's still a lot of work to do. Inflation still is high, particularly underlying inflation, or what we call core inflation, which is better predictor of what is going to happen to inflation in the future. So it strips out some of the items that are really very temporary subject to supply shocks, which are really not influenced very much by monetary policy. The Fed has actually gotten now in territory where monetary policy is tight, but we still have very strong labor markets. And even though inflation has come down a lot, what we call headline inflation, core inflation is still pretty high. So they still have a lot of work to do to get inflation down to 2%. So I think that it is likely that they're going to have to keep raising rates a little bit further. But on the other hand, it really depends very much on the data. We've had some favorable inflation data recently that means that the Fed may not have to do as much as they might have otherwise had to do. The key thing is that they have to keep rates high for quite a long period of time in order to really convince markets and also keep demand under control in order to keep inflation from permanently being higher than the target of 2%. 
You were talking a little bit there about core inflation. We've obviously seen changes in the underlying makeup of which prices are moving most over the last sort of 18 months or so. What do you think of the mixture of more transitory and more persistent elements in inflation right now? It sounds like you might be of the view that the sort of last mile in in reducing inflation is actually a little bit more difficult than what we've seen so far. I think that's right. We had the so-called supply shocks in the jargon of economists. So we expected those temporary factors to actually go away and inflation to come down a lot. That was really in the cards. The key problem is these shocks actually were more persistent than people expected, particularly because of actions both by the Federal Reserve and also by the federal government, which were much too expansionary. So legislation passed in 2021. The legislation in 2020, by the way, the fiscal expansion was appropriate. The economy was coming back pretty strongly, and yet the Biden administration passed a huge fiscal stimulus bill, actually a bad piece of legislation in my view. That actually then stimulated demand, and that means that these supply constraints are not going to disappear as quickly because people are going to want to buy more. And that sort of set the stage for inflation to really start to accelerate tremendously in 2022. The mistake the Fed made was that they kept rates basically at zero too long. They had some problems in terms of groupthink, I think, that was there. Then, of course, they turned it around. Usually monetary policy changes very slowly. It's like a super tanker uh, trying to turn around. Instead, they were more like a motorboat. They got the policy 180 degree shift, did it very quickly. And that's actually been very, very beneficial. Without that, we'd be really in much more trouble now than we are. So I think that that's something very much to their credit. But we're really now just starting to see the effects of high interest rates helping to slow down inflation. But the problem is that that's really underlying. The headline was going to shoot up. Once the supply problems go away, it's going to come back down. But now with the issue is how do we get inflation back to 2%? I wanted to ask you about the outlook. Earlier in the year, you wrote with a number of colleagues about the sort of precedent for a disinflationary episode that didn't come with significant economic sacrifice or with a recession. You essentially found that this is rare to non-existent in modern American history. Certainly, that is now sort of what people are expecting to happen. Do you think that's still a very unlikely outcome here? Do you think a soft landing is maybe more likely than you believe then? Well, I think the soft landing is more likely than I believe then. But I still think that the likelihood is that we're going to get a recession. Here's the issue. What we we see is that when the Fed tightens to deal with inflation, the only times you get soft landings are when the central bank has not made mistakes in the past and inflation is low. So it's really a preemptive move against inflation. And that's been successful several times. What we talked about is the fact that whenever inflation has gotten out of control and the central bank tries to stop it, it raises rates. And because it doesn't know exactly when to stop and there's a lot of risk if you don't do enough, you tend to raise rates a little bit too much. And that's the likely scenario. So I still think it is the likely scenario. We haven't seen the end of this, by the way. Inflation is still too high. I think the Fed is going to keep rates higher than the market's expected. I think that they're still probably over-optimistic. And in fact, at some point, this will cause the economy to slow. Now, the data has actually been much more favorable to the view that we'll get a soft landing. I think one of the key things that makes a soft landing more possible is the fact that the Fed turned around and raised rates so quickly. So the key is that if you keep inflation expectations under control, then you don't have to raise rates by as much to basically slow down the economy and get inflation to fall. 
But if I were a betting man, I'm still willing to make a pretty strong bet that we're going to have a recession. But, you know, I could be wrong. I'd be happy if we're wrong. Okay, So um, this is a case of where if I lost my money in the bet, I'd say, good. <laughs> That's a great situation for me. Professor Mishkin, it's been great to have you on the show. Thank you very much for joining us. It's my pleasure. I'd like to bring back Simon Rabinovich, the Economist's US economics editor. Simon, good to have you with us again. Good to still be here, Mike. So, Simon, Frederick Mishkin was pretty gushing in his praise for the Fed, learning from what he says were its initial mistakes on the back of misfounded stimulus, the second package in the US. They've managed to turn the ship around. Are you with him on this? Has the Fed done that good a job? So I think before discussing the Fed, just to talk about the misguided stimulus for one second, I mean, we have been very critical of it, and I think rightly so. But I do think if you look at it in the round, if the Fed is able to wrestle inflation down without a recession, then I think some of the criticism of the stimulus is going to really be looking a lot weaker in the sense that what you end up with is a year of slightly uncomfortably high inflation, but incredibly strong employment and no big recession, and no runaway inflation. So, you know, in the round, that's really not a very bad outcome. As for the Fed itself, you know, has it done a good job? I think the answer has to be yes. It's frustrating just because it's very difficult to ascribe causality to any one thing in economics. And you've got some people arguing that the Fed didn't have to tighten at all, that inflation would have just come down eventually if it had just been patient. But I think it's useful in this regard to kind of look at counterfactuals. And one is, you know, had the Fed done nothing at all, surely growth would have remained a lot stronger, inflation a lot higher. Alternatively, could the Fed have done too much? Absolutely. You know, if it had kept at the pace of rate rises that it was doing last year, something very serious would have eventually broken. So I think on balance, you look at the shape that the economy is in now. You can't give all of the credit to the Fed. You know, obviously it was lucky. Obviously, fiscal policy played a role as well. But surely the Fed does deserve some of the credit. You know, at the very least, it did not screw things up. And what do you think the biggest thing economists can learn from this latest hiking cycle is, unusual as it has been? Well, I think the lessons are going to, in the end, depend on how this all wraps up. So contingent on it being a soft landing, you know, what we've seen in the last few weeks, I think in some respects, the lessons will be quite frustrating. Many of the regularities, I wouldn't say laws, but many of the economic regularities that we have looked at for years, things like the inverted yield curve, uh, incredibly low sentiment survey readings, just the ultra fast tightening by the Fed itself. All of these normally would have been recession indicators. This time they weren't. Is that a lesson that can be carried forward into future economic cycles? Or is that because of all the various pandemic oddities? So I I think that will be a challenge to draw lessons if there is a soft landing. If there is truly a hard landing, I think one of the conclusions would have to be that you know, we often talk about long and variable lags in the way that monetary policy affects the economy. And then I think one of the conclusions that we'd have to draw is that those lags are actually longer than many people had expected. And I think there would be questions about the way that monetary policy is actually being transmitted. Just one final point is that I do think whether there's a soft landing or a hard landing, I think one lesson that will be concretely learned is the way that we look at the job market, I think, has changed. It used to be that we would focus 
overwhelmingly on the unemployment rate. I think nowadays, there's much more attention to kind of the broader state of the labor market. So kind of looking at the interplay between job vacancies, between help wanted ads, and between the potential labor supply itself. I think that's a much richer way of looking at the labor market. I think that's the way that economists are going to look at the labor market in the future. So just this narrow focus on the unemployment rate alone, I think will be increasingly looking a little bit outdated. Simon, it's been great to hear from you. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure, Mike. So Alice, Tom, what did you make of what you've heard today? Yeah, I think that last point that Frederick Mishkin was making about how the lessons that we take from this period and what we think about it really do depend on how it ends up. So if we do have a recession, this sort of may no longer hold true. But I've been gripped by all the frying pan charts that have been doing the rounds on Twitter and on various economic circles. So these are People charting things like GDP or real personal consumption from before the global financial crisis, sticking a trend line through them. And in general, during the global financial crisis, there's a sort of big dip downwards and then the sort of trend resumes at a lower level. So you have this lost output or this lost real personal consumption as the trend line floats along above it. And then you get to the COVID-19 pandemic and the massive amounts of fiscal stimulus have often cause these sort of measures of real output or these measures of real consumption to catch up to the old trend line. And the the lesson that people are taking from this is this idea that, you know, actually, if you do throw enough stimulus at the economy, you can shock things back into this much higher level of output or consumption. And essentially, that it's sort of a real shame that we didn't do it earlier. And and COVID has been um, a time to really experiment with policy in that way. Now, those charts are not the gospel. Um, There are definitely some sort of charting sleights of hand that go into drawing them. Some other economists have pointed out that inflation is really doing some of the work in sort of lifting up some measures of consumption, even if you try to adjust for it. And maybe as uh, Mr. Michigan pointed out, you do get a recession and things reverse course back to the sort of lower old trend lines that we were on. But I also think, as we've sort of highlighted today, maybe we do just get to sort of chug along at this higher level of consumption or output. And I think that does have some sort of pretty radical lessons for how you should think about the impact that policy can have. Although we did get a lot of costs for the sort of massive amounts of policy stimulus that happened in terms of inflation, if it ends up not having been that costly to bring it down in terms of the damage that you've had to do to the economy, then I think there are some pretty sort of radical things that we can learn from this experience. I personally have not come across these frying pan charts that you refer to, but I'm absolutely going to be uh, furiously Googling those after we finish recording our podcast. Uh, But yes, it's all very perplexing. And I think part of that is, as Simon said, this long and variable lag in the impact of monetary policy, which just makes it very difficult to know whether economic conditions today are, are a good indicator of where things are going to be in six months' time. And then the other factor that I think makes this difficult is the fact that there's a kind of set of cyclical dynamics playing out around interest rates and borrowing and investment and default rates in parallel to a number of kind of slower moving but very sizable secular shifts. So I think one of those is an aging population, which we've talked a lot about on the show recently, and I suspect is one factor at least contributing to why labor markets remain so tight as it squeezes the kind of supply side of the equation. 
And then the other is is all the long-term investment that's being spurred both by concerns around exposure to China and also the focus on decarbonization underwritten by the Inflation Reduction Act. So this cycle has not just been disturbed by the pandemic, but also these other seismic shifts that are playing out in the global economy in parallel. So no frying pan charts made it to the Serengeti in the last couple of weeks. Um, I think that with everything we've discussed, the sort of fun thing, at least from the perspective of a financial journalist, is it's always a macro experiment, right? There are a few more unusual variables right now, but these things are basically never clean. And you get people arguing for decades about what actually happened with wildly different views because of so many different variables. You have economic historians still furiously digging into each other about the 1970s and how much of that inflationary episode can be attributed to supply-side factors, the oil shocks in particular, and how much was down to sort of monetary and fiscal mismanagement. In the 1980s, you can talk about how much the rate hikes contributed to bringing global inflation down, and then you can talk about the rise of China and the integration of the global economy that was sort of inherently disinflationary towards the end of that decade. I was reading something written by Gregory Mankiw about the 1990s when he was sort of summing up the monetary policy of that era. And it's a sort of very formative era in terms of lots of central banks adopting inflation targets and this period of moderate economic growth and inflation. And a lot of the sort of idea of central banks being able to control inflation in the way that they think that they can, in the way that their framework suggests they can, comes from this period. And one of the observations he makes was that things were basically incredibly stable. Monetary policy looked really good. But this is partly just luck in the sense that there weren't any big food or energy price shocks during that period. And to some extent, they were just pretty lucky. Likewise, I don't think we're ever going to get a sort of particularly clean and satisfying answer to a lot of the questions we're asking today, whether it's how necessary the rate hikes were, how much they contributed to bringing down inflation, what the causes of the inflation were in the first place. You know, this is always going to be left as a slightly open bit of discussion, which I presume is very unsatisfying if you're an academic or potentially an investor, but it makes things much more enjoyable if you're a journalist. Yeah, you shouldn't go into studying economics if you want clean and satisfying answers to all of your questions, as Mike says. You just got to live with it, you know, live with not knowing. Yeah, there's no Russian invasion of Ukraine in a general equilibrium model. So you're, you're just <laughs> going to be disappointed over and over again. With that, I think it's time for us to go to our statistics of the week. Who would like to go first? I'm happy to kick us off. My stat of the week is 22 billion, which is the combined number of hours that the global population spends on one or another of Alphabet's products every day. So that's Google Search, Android, Gmail, Google Maps, and so on. And I pinched this from a big story that we've just published on the challenges facing Alphabet, not just from the AI boom, but more broadly as it thinks about what its next act is going to be, which I definitely recommend to listeners. But yeah, 22 billion hours, a huge amount of time spent on Alphabet products. That's like three hours a person. Gosh, what a collective amount of time we're either sort of wasting or driving utility from uh, on all of these things. My stat of the week this week is 31 years, which is the number of years that Labradors have been America's top dog. So they were the most popular dog breed in America for the last 31 years, but they have been eclipsed 
as of March by French Bulldogs, which have leapt from 19th place in 2011 to first place as of 2022. So, yeah, apparently everyone's going mad for French Bulldogs. I feel like this must vary so much from country to country and from city to city and area to area. I definitely feel like Groodles or Cockapoos, where I live, are, are by far the number one breed. What is a Groodle? I've got the second half. Golden Retriever and Poodle. Ah, I see. I must admit, I do find that to be a very depressing stat. And I'm going to sound like a sort of an incredibly curmudgeonly guy, but I really feel like America replacing Labradors with French Bulldogs is a sign of social collapse to come. (laughs) Let's put it that way. (laughs) The end times. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's funny that Tom should say uh, he thinks this must vary by country to country because the piece that I have ripped this from is our interactive graphic detail this week and it has charts for many different countries. So in Britain, Labradors are still first, but French Bulldogs are now in second place, having been in 22nd place in 2011. They also seem to have grown in popularity in South Africa, not in France. The French (laughs) don't like the French Bulldog. (laughs) Okay, okay. Uh, Dog's back in the kennel. Um, Okay, my stat of the week. It's a year, it's 2027. And that is the State Bank of India's latest forecast as to when India will be the third largest economy in the world, overtaking, among other countries, Japan, the current third place. We're talking about a 5 trillion US dollar GDP. They've pushed that forecast Two years earlier from their 2029 forecast previously, the State Bank of India is a a commercial bank rather than the central bank. But yeah, very, very interesting. Japan's been second for quite a while behind China, dropping even further back. But a world where India is the third biggest economy, obviously a lot of changes, especially in my usual part of the world. I wonder what dogs these wealthy Indians will acquire. Right, that's Mm. it. That's enough. (laughs) (laughs) With that, I think all that's left to do is thank Julia Coronado and Frederick Mishkin. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And you can always write to us with pictures of your dogs at podcasts at economist.com. Today's show was produced by Dan Asher and Marie Keyworth. Our sound engineer is Wei Dong Lin. And the executive producer is Marguerite Howell. I'm Mike Bird. I'm Tom Lee Devlin. I'm Alice Fullwood. And this is The Economist. We all need to write for work. Want to improve? Bolster your skills with Economist Education's six-week online course. You'll explore the craft of writing and learn from The Economist editors how to engage and persuade Whether it's vibrant memos, pithy social media posts, or storytelling with data. And as a listener, enjoy a 15% discount with the code WRITING. So sign up now at economist.com forward slash business writing. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.